you have your Bibles and would turn with me to the book of John, chapter 10, I'll begin reading in verse 1. John, chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. But when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of the strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them. But they understood not what things they were which he had spoken unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man entereth in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh but not for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is a hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. And for a little while tonight, I want to talk to you about an abundant life. The Lord bless you may be seated. Before I begin tonight, again, it's always good to be at home. And I hope something I say to you tonight will help your life to be better than it was. would also like to request that um, you remember me. Uh, I leave Tuesday morning for China, and I will be there 11 days or 12 days in China uh, speaking um, in a couple of places. Uh, we have to be careful what we say because of the Internet today. They are constantly listening and watching the Internet to find information out. And so I have to be careful how or what I say when I go. Um, but one of the places I'll be going, I will be allowed to speak publicly, which hasn't happened before. And so... I request your prayers that the Lord would open some doors that would allow people's lives to uh, change and be different. And I, I covet your prayers. Uh, I guess you understand I'm still in John. What an incredible book. The more you read it, the more things you discover there are there. Reading the 10th chapter of John from the perspective of an old man 
after the fact, remembering what Jesus was saying and what he said it for and the fact they didn't understand it in the beginning, but now at the end of his life he can look back at what he heard and understand what Jesus really was telling the people. Not only were the disciples there, but there was a crowd there that heard Jesus. This event takes place just after he has healed a man who was blind. The man was not only blind, but it appears that he didn't even have eyeballs in his eye sockets. So Jesus stoops down, spits on the ground, and makes a ball of mud, and then smears it into the eyes of the man who is blind and tells him to go wash in the pool of Shalom. And when the man goes and washes, his eyes are healed. Again, this is an event that happened on the Sabbath day. It appears that everything John remembers and tells about Jesus always happened on the Sabbath. So there's a point here. They, they tried to say that you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. But what he was trying to prove to them by his behavior, here, here's a man that's not just blind. There are no eyes to see out of. And when the man walks away with eyes that can see, everybody is talking about the fact that this has never happened in their history from the beginning of their recorded history to this point. This kind of miracle has never taken place before. It wasn't just a miracle of recovering of, of eyes or sight. There's a generation that takes place here. The body literally produces eyes that weren't even there. And crowd is quite awed by what happens. And then there's an argument that starts happening. And, and people are arguing about uh, whether or how could this man do this. And, and he did it on the Sabbath. And Jesus is, in the previous chapter, I think in chapter 7, he, he lets them know or he says to them that, that uh, the Sabbath was made for God. And God has never stopped working, even though when you read the creation, it said he rested. He may have rested, but he didn't cease working because for the, the sun to shine and the clouds to happen and rain to fall, it required the handiwork of God in every aspect of that. And so uh, God is never off duty. He's always on duty. No matter what time it is, there's not a day set aside that you can't get a hold of God. The Jews had created this idea of God, and we actually sang about it tonight. I'm glad they sang that song about holiness because the Jews considered God to be so incredibly holy that a human being had no ability to connect to God because of his holiness. Because he is holy and different, humans had absolutely no hope of ever being touched by God or connecting to God. So all we could do is just follow the laws He gave us. And if we lived our life based upon the laws and we, we completed or satisfied enough of them, then God would be pleased with us and, and we'd go to heaven. If we didn't, then our lives would be a life of chaos and we'd wind up in hell. So John is writing at 
the end of his life, and he's remembering some of these things that Jesus taught. And now the revelation is happening. He, he, he's contemplating what Jesus said 60, 70 years before, and now is applying them to his own life. And there are several things I want to point out in this passage of Scripture that I have read to you tonight. And first, let me point out that there are two kinds of problems. There's the problems that happen from the outside. That's the thief. But there's also the problem that happens from the inside, and that's the shepherd that's a hireling that doesn't care about his flock. He's only there for the job or for the money, and the moment danger shows up, he runs and flees and leaves the flock to be destroyed. So there's internal issues as well as external issues, and we have to be aware that they're there. There's, there's going to be those who try to steal everything that you have. They're, gonna, they're not only going to steal what you have, the thief cometh, but not for to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's his purpose, is to wreck havoc in every life. And there are all kinds of thieves that happen in life. We, we can see people who like to steal others' joy, and that we can also apply it to Satan. Satan came for one reason. His purpose was in, to, to steal your kingdom, and he destroyed our relationship with God. And then the death that happened was the spiritual death that took place that requires regeneration to overcome what Satan did in the garden. The, the, the stealing of my kingdom was important to them because Jesus came to give that kingdom back. What we fail to understand is when God gives us back the kingdom that he gave us in the garden, which is our ability to connect with him on a daily basis, he is not like Satan. Satan rules your life, according to what Paul said, by his own will. He does with them at his will. When you're a child of Satan, you have no choice in your life. You, you have, your sin is by nature. That's just who you are, and you sin because you, you don't have any other option. It's just part of who you are. When you become a child of God, that nature changes. You're, you become a new creature or a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. You're now a brand new person in God. The literal translation says you are a brand new creation. The old man has died, and the new man has arisen, and that new man now belongs to a new family. He has a new name, new address, and new clothes to wear. Those were the three parts of adoption. You got a new name, a new house to live at. And, and then you got a new address. You're not welcome at your old house. And then you get a new dress, and that's holiness. God is holy, but he's not so holy that he can't touch us. If you look at the garden example, in the garden, God desired every day to be with Adam. Every day, he walked in the cool of the garden with Adam, and Adam and God had a conversation where they talked on a regular basis. It has always been God's desire to touch man as often as possible, and to be involved in man's life as often as possible. God's not hard to find. God's not hiding. God's not running from us. You don't have to chase God. You don't have to. 
It doesn't require a lot of effort to find God. When we desire God, God's always available. We don't chase God. God's not running. Jesus said, the day cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father seeketh such. When you start worshiping God, He starts trying to find you. You you don't have to find Him. The moment you express your love and affection to God, God instantly is trying to find your location. You're not trying to find His location. Think about it, folks. If I'm trying to find God's location, how in the world can something as, as defective as I am or as as illiterate as I am or as ignorant as I am, how in the world can I find a God that I can't even get my mind around how big He is? I'm going to find Him? No, I don't have to find Him. He's always been looking for His children. He's always been trying to find His children. He's, He's always seeking us. We don't have to seek Him He's not a God that's detached. The Greeks thought of God as, as a God that created the world and then abandoned it. He just withdrew and left the world to man. And it became man's responsibility to figure out how to, how to control the world or get along the world. Paul teaches a gospel about Jesus. It's totally contrary to all of that. In the Hebrew letter, he lets us know that we have a high priest that is easily touched with the feelings of our infirmities. The word easily is sympathuo, where we get our word sympathy from. We've got a God that sympathizes with us. He understands our needs. He understands our problems and our issues, and and He identifies with us. Why? Because He became man and lived among us and understands every problem of my life. He was tempted in all points like as we are without sin. He understands being human. Satan doesn't understand that, but God does. God is well aware of your humanity. The psalmist said, he remembered they were but flesh. God is not conflicted because you show up as a human occasionally. It doesn't cause God heartache or heart failure or anxiety issues when you act like a human. He remembered they were but flesh. When you read that scripture, if you read all of them that are around it, the previous scripture in Psalms says that that uh, they gave him uh, service of their lips or they they spoke about him with their mouth but they didn't put their behavior or their actions into what they were saying. It was just lip service. Many a times, they, they angered God, but it says, He stirred not up all His wrath. He turned His wrath away because He remembered they were but flesh. If there's anything God understands tonight, it's a fact that every one of us here are flesh. I don't see halos. They haven't been passed out to humans. Humans will never have them. We don't have the ability to do that. It, our nature is to get even, and, and, and our nature is if you hurt me, I get you back. And my nature is that my needs are more important than yours, so I'm going to be first in line. That's our nature. Our nature has this tendency to be evil if we don't 
control it. Holiness is, is separation. It's making a choice to separate myself from the things that are around me and attaching myself to God. Holiness is more than an outward sign. It, it's, it's an understanding of a heart that recognizes that I've got to detach myself from some things, and then I have to attach myself to things. Paul, writing to the, the, the church at Colossae, says that you put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, lie not one to another. That Greek word, put off, literally means to disrobe. But it's in the middle voice. Our language has no middle voice. So literally it translates, you put off yourself. You disrobe yourself of anger. You disrobe yourself of wrath. You disrobe yourself of malice. You disrobe yourself of filthy community. You disrobe yourself of lying. The Holy Ghost doesn't take over our lives. You don't become a puppet. When God gives you back your kingdom, He frees you to become the vessel of honor He created you to be. Now, that's a problem to a lot of us. We've made so many mistakes in life, and so many things have happened to us in life. When, when we stand and look in the mirror of God's Word, we, we see our flaws instead of the treasure. We see our mistakes and our hang-ups and all of our issues instead of seeing the vessel He created us to be. God's never said, oops. God don't make mistakes. Humans make mistakes. We're, we're the ones that cause issues in other people's lives. We're the ones who say things and do things that injures and hurts. And, and the words that we say have a long-lasting effect. Our world's lied to us. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is the biggest lie ever told. You can beat me with a stick and I can recover. You can say words to me and, and scar me for life. They're permanent. I, 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 rem, I, I tell this story often. When, when I was seven or eight years of age, we were practicing for, uh, in the children's church, to sing upstairs in the big church on Sunday morning. And the lady leading the songs are leading us or teaching us these songs is the older sister of my friend who's standing beside me. And we're singing these songs, and she stopped everybody. I mean, we're, we're talking about eight, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds. We're, we're not talking about adults. We're talking about kids. And she stops everybody and says, somebody's off key. And my friend standing beside me said, it's James. So her response to me was, James, just move your lips and form the words, but don't sing. I hate music today. I promise you, you get in my car, there won't be no music on. I don't buy CDs to listen to people sing. Why? Because I'm haunted by words that say, just move your lips. We can say things to each other. See, there's destruction from inside. We, we can talk about 
the hireling. You know, that can be applied to all of us. That can be applied to the way I respond to people that maybe I don't like or, or maybe has irritated me. And, and in a moment of irritation, I, I let my words become weapons that wreck lives and hurt lives and damage lives. That's what Satan's done. Have you ever found anybody that Satan has made feel good? You know, one person who, who can give you a testimony that the devil made me feel like I'm the most special person around? That has never happened, has it? Because his, his purpose in life is not to make you feel better about you, but to make you feel so full of guilt and shame that when you walk away, you'll never change your life. That's the problem with guilt and shame. There's no redemption in it. There's no outlet. There's no way to get out of where you're at. Guilt and shame has never changed one alcoholic or one drug addict. They have lots of guilt and shame, but they never change who they are because of the guilt and shame. But all of us have learned to use it. Honey, if you really love me, you'd buy me a new dress. Honey, if you really love me, you'd let me go fishing. So we learn how to use guilt all the time. And it, it, it's a relationship we can have with people, but it's the cheapest one. It requires no maintenance. Just say it, leave it alone, they'll carry it the rest of their life. It doesn't build anybody up. It makes them feel worthless. God has never rubbed anybody's nose in their mistake. When, when you fail, God has redemption. My little children, sin not. That's not the end of the statement. There's a comma. And it says, but if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a perpetuation for our sins, but not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. We're not supposed to sin. When I was part of Satan's family, I sinned by nature. When I become part of God's family, I sin by choice. I can't blame my nature. You know what? I can't help myself. That's not the... That's not the case now. The moment I become a child, every sin I commit is by choice. The reason there was adoption in the New Testament is because the Jews believed that you weren't a man until your father defined you to be a man. So if dad wanted to wait till you were 40 to declare your manhood, then at 40, dad could say, my son is now a man. And at that moment, you become responsible for all your behavior up to that point. The 40 years before, you're not responsible for it. You can do anything you wanted, anything could happen, and you'd never be held accountable for it because you had never been declared a son. Adoption instantly puts you into sonship. You're now accountable for your behavior. We can't say, well, I, I, I didn't know, or I didn't mean to, or, or the devil made me do it, or the devil put words in my mouth or thoughts in my mind. The devil hadn't done none of those things. Now, if sin happened, it's by my choice. It's because this is what I'm choosing to do. It's easy to tell when, when you've been lied to. You know how you can tell? Just start watching people. And they'll start paying attention to a package instead of content. 
It's going to be the outside. We're going to start focusing on appearance and what I look like and, and, and uh, all this stuff around me when the truth is I can't even see me. I have no clue what I look like. I know I'm old because my kids, grandkids tell me that occasionally. Papa, what's wrong with your skin? It just looks old. I can't see old. I don't see any wrinkles. I, I, I can't see that my skin's sagging off my face. And though, you know, I, 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 I can't see that. So when photographs happen and I look at them, I think, oh, who is that person? Well, I can't see it. I have no clue what I look like. Because I can't see me, all I see is the inside. See, I, I can see that little kid standing on the stage that day that was told, just move your lips, don't sing. I can see him. I, 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 can, I can see the kid that was made fun of. I can see him. So I, I can live my life based upon what I'm seeing. And when I start looking at those things, then the way to protect me from those things has changed the outside. So I start focusing. It's called transference in psychology. I, I start transferring all this stuff in here to the outside so I don't have to worry about it. Anymore. I don't even have to think about what's on the inside. I just fix the exterior, and I pay attention to the exterior. And when I get the exterior all fixed up, then I'm going to feel much better about myself, right? Have you found anybody that's done that? No, just read the news. They put the plastic in or the rubber in or the silicon in or the salt in, and then they take it out. <laughs> They're not happy because you can't do enough to this body to change one of those visual images of the inside. I, I, I have no clue. I can't see this package. I don't even know if my hair is combed right. I don't even know if my tie is on straight. I, 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 don't, I can't see me. I'm on the inside looking out. You're looking at the external. I'm looking at the internal. So John is writing to the church, and he says there's, there's two problems here. There's the problem of the outside, and there's the problem of the inside. You're going you're to let the problem of the outside wreck your life. There's going to be wolves. There are going to be people who say things that cause you great pain. Most of the time, those people who say those kind of things that hurt you deeply also tell you occasionally they love you. See, nobody can break your heart but somebody you love. Strangers can't break your heart. Somebody walks up to you on the street and tells you you're ugly and stupid. What do you do? Do you accept it? Oh, my, I feel like such a horrible person. No, you look at them like, what kind of tree did you fall out of? You don't believe nothing. If, if I go, where I grew up in Wichita Falls, there was a place on the south side of town uh, that's called the State Hospital. And it, it was a place where people with mental disabilities resided. I, and you could go by there occasionally, and they're out in the yard. And, and if I drove up there and get out of my vehicle, and one of those people walk up and say, James, you are the most intelligent person I've ever met. I've never met anybody as intelligent as you are. Do I believe them? 
No, I know where they're at. They're in the insane asylum. See, I choose whose words I give value and whose words I don't give. I make a conscience choice to decide who I give permission to wreck my life and who I don't give permission to wreck my life. Our lives are wrecked because of the behaviors of others, the words of others. I hate you. I wish you weren't born. I, I remember a conversation I had 25, 26 years ago with a 14-year-old over in East Texas. Her mother brought her in for me to talk to, and she didn't want to be there. She didn't want to talk to me, but I'm supposed to talk to her. And so I, I, I tried to talk to this fort. She wouldn't say a word. She just sat there and looked at me for about 30 minutes. And I, I did all the talking. And, and finally, after about 30, 35 minutes, I, I said, you know, I, I understand you don't want to be here and you don't want to talk to me and you don't want to hear nothing I have to say. I, I understand that. But I just got a question for you. If I had the ability to grant you any wish in life that you'd want, what would your first wish be? And without hesitation, there, there, was, there was no moments of reflection. There, there wasn't a 30-second pause. With, with the moment I got the words out of my mouth, with instantly her response was, I want a new face. And my response was just shock because I said, why in the world would you want a new face? She was a beautiful young lady, and, and, and I'm not exaggerating she could have easily been a model. She, she was a beautiful young lady, 14-year-old. Why would you want a new face? She said, because my dad's told me all my life I'm ugly and he hates me and he wishes I wasn't born. She's suicidal. Got all kinds of issues. Why? Because there's the attack, the wolves. And the problem with wolves is they're usually not strangers. They're usually us. We have an ability to say things that hurt, wound, injure, because that's our nature. You do me wrong, and I, I, I don't erase that record. You know, when, when Paul gave the Ten Commandments of love, he, he didn't have me in mind. When love is kind, that's a tough one. Love doesn't vaunt itself or love is not puffed up. Love is not easily provoked. Wow. That's real comforting, though, if you think about it. Easily. That gives you a way out. As long as you don't respond instantly, then you weren't easily provoked. Took a while. Took a lot of pressure. Took a lot of a lot of push, and finally you got to the point where, boom! It, it, it's okay to explode because I I didn't do it instantly. It wasn't the moment it happened. It wasn't the next moment. It, it they just kept on, kept on, and finally there's a line over here. If they push me past, then it's okay for me to respond. Too bad it wasn't written in the English language. That gives us a lot of escape. The literal translation says love keeps no record wrong. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not fair to me. i got a memory like an elephant. 
I'm incredibly task on. You do me wrong, I can tell you the day and where it happened. I, I, I just have that ability to file that away in my brain. And, and if I need to regenerate it, it's not difficult to do. To tell me I can't keep records is not fair. That's what it says. See, love doesn't drag yesterday up. That's the little devil inside you that does that. No, I think that part of us makes the devil blush. That's our human nature. See, I'm convinced humans have the ability to make the devil blush. He used to live in holiness. It's us that has this ability to create. He doesn't have none of those creative powers. He hasn't created anything. He's not in charge of anything. He's just a fallen angel. And fallen angels still have to respond like saved. Or angels that haven't been, that haven't fallen. They, they're required to do one thing. If God shows up, they still have to worship. Jesus shows up in the synagogue and there's a man possessed of a devil there. What does the devil do? He says, I know who you are. Thou art the Christ. Jesus said, hold thy peace, which literally translates shut up. Don't say another word. You're not, you're not glorifying me. You're not telling the world that I am the Son of God. You're not, you don't have that privilege. There's not a devil that does this. Stuff. It's us. It, 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 it's, it's the inside. See, there, there's people that do things outside, but then it's all that junk inside that causes my response and, and the way I respond to people. And, and, and it's, it's my, my selfishness or my self-centeredness or, or my need for, to get even or my need for revenge. That's what causes the issues. i got to choose to understand that, that I can be the shepherd that, that is only there for the money, you know the problem with the first Adam? Instead of standing in the way of his wife to prevent her from dying, he stood and watched to see if it would happen. And the first Adam wasn't willing to die for his wife. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, says, the shepherd gives his life for his flock. When the wolves come, the good shepherd doesn't throw his staff down and his rod down and take off running because he sees an enemy out there that's going to wreck life. The good shepherd says no, and he's willing to die for his flock. For my home to be safe and my world to be safe, I've got to be willing to make that decision and that dedication at my house. I've got to be willing to die for everybody there. If I'm not, They'll never be safe. They'll never be happy. They'll, they'll never grow up to be healthy adults because they'll live in fear all their life. Actually, they'll live in survival because all they can do is get by. The thief comes. But for to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what the thief is here for. I, I come, thieves, he stole my kingdom, but Jesus gave it back. When he filled you with the Holy Ghost, he restored you to the garden. Now you can talk to God every day. Not only can you talk to him, he now can live in you. You, you don't just have to be around him. What, what about him crawling inside? I mean, that's a totally different understanding. I, I'm going to live in, I'm going to tabernacle in you. 
What an incredible experience. He destroyed my relationship with God. For 4,000 years, God couldn't hold man or touch him because if he did, he'd die because he's holy. But once the cross took place, now he can wrap his arms around you. And Andrew Newberg, in studying people who speak in tongues and watching how the brain responds to the, the, the speaking in tongues experience, discovered that when you speak in tongues, the part of your brain that's highly active is your sensory perception. It's like every nerve on the outside of your body has been touched all at the same time. It's like God just wraps himself around you and starts stroking every nerve on your body because God desires to touch you. See, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. The thief come to take it all away, but I come to give you back the kingdom. I, I've wanted to hold you and touch you and, and be close to you all your life. And before a cross, I couldn't do that. But once the cross has happened, now I can live inside of you. Now I can be part of your life. Now I can touch you in a way you can't even comprehend. And, and I can be part of your life in a way when you try to tell somebody about it, you just there's no words to explain it. You ever ask anybody what they felt like when they got the Holy Ghost? What did you feel like when you spoke in tongues? There's all kinds of descriptions. Nobody can truly express it. It's just joy unspeakable, full of glory. That's what his purpose was for, is to give us back what he created us to be and to restore the king. He, he stole my kingdom. He killed my, my spirit. But now, because of his spirit living in me, this body might die. But at the moment of his coming, it will resurrect itself into a new body. If I'm here when he comes, we're going to, oh, it's going to, transformation's going to happen instantaneously. We're all be caught up to meet him in the air. I get it all back. God can't keep people from doing bad things to us because if he does, he has to violate their will. God won't stop you from doing dumb things. He's not going to stop others from hurting you. He, he, he can't do He could, but he won't. Because the moment he does, you lose your will. So he won't do that. But he has promised that no matter what got stole, killed, or destroyed, I'm going to give it all back. I'm going to return it to you. And the prophecy of Isaiah 61 wasn't, you're just going to get it back. For your shame, you shall have Double. All that shame you felt in life that, that makes you feel worthless, God said, when, when I restore this thing the way it is, I will give you back double of your shame. In their land, they shall possess the double. The, the blessing of being part of this church and God's family is when he restores you, he don't just give you back what life stole. He returns it twofold. So if life stole self-esteem, God will give back double self-esteem. If Life stole virtue. God said, I'll give you back double. Whatever life took from you, God says, I will return it twofold because I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly.
I come that you don't just get by or barely make it or barely exist. But I've come to give you abundant life. Abundant life. Not just casual life. You're not going to barely make it to heaven. We're not going to barely get in. That's not what God designed the church to be. We're not just going to barely survive. That's not happening. God created us to be victorious. But for that to happen, we've got to plug in correctly. And we've got to understand there's, there's a battle inside. I'm responsible for the battle inside. Nobody can take care of that battle but me. And the battle outside, we have a good shepherd. He, he's not a hireling. He's not just here to collect a paycheck. He's here because he's willing to lay his life down for us and give his life for us. I don't ever have to worry about being abused. You're never going to walk away from God's presence with your head down, your face red, because he shamed you, he embarrassed you, or humiliated you. God don't operate like that. He said, well, here's what I want to do for you. I want to give you back life, and I want to do it abundantly. The word abundant is an incredible word. It's not just having a whole lot. It literally translates exceeding any number, need, measure, or rank. I will, I will be bigger than whatever number you can count. If you can count to a million, I'm bigger than a million. If you can count to a billion, I'm bigger than a billion. You can count to a trillion. I'm bigger than a trillion. If, if you can count to whatever numbers past that, and we don't have numbers past that. If, if, we can, uh, if, if, if you can count to a Google, which is 10 times 10 to the 100th power, and put 100 zeros behind it, I can still outcount it. There's not a hair on your head I don't know about. And if there's 4 billion people in the world, if you just had one hair, that's 4 billion Every hair is numb. He knows when you lose them. God's not shocked that at 63 years of age, I look like I do. The psalmist said, he wrote in his book, All my members, when as yet there was none of them. What's the book? The book of life. When, when James was conceived at the instant of conception, that's the only moment in my life I had no members. Within a matter of moments, that single cell became two, and then four, then eight, then 16, then 32, then 64, then 144, and 256, and it just kept multiplying. So the only moment I had nothing was the instant of conception. At the instant of conception, he took his pen and he starts writing James. At one year of age, this is what he'll look like. At five years of age, this is what he'll look like. At ten years of age, this is what he'll, he'll weigh 130 pounds at ten and be five foot four. At 13 years of age, he'll be six foot one and weigh 130 pounds. He, he wasn't shocked by any of that. He's not shocked. That a whole lot of hair is missing. He's not shocked at the outside. He wrote the definition of my life from cradle to grave. 
So I, I've come to give you life, but I'm not just going to give you life back. I'm going to exceed any number you can create in your life. I, I'm going to exceed any need you have in your life. I'm bigger than your need. I, I don't know what your needs are. Whatever your need is, God says, I'm bigger than your need. I've come to give you life bigger than any need that could possibly arise in your life. i come to give you back life, and it's going to be greater than anything you can ever comprehend. I've come to give you life bigger than your needs. I, I, I've come to give you life bigger than any rank that's around you. If you're a four-star general, he's five. If you're a five-star general, he's the commander-in-chief. Now, you're not going to outrank him. There's nothing in life that's going to be bigger. He's going to exceed needs, numbers, ranks, measures. However big your cup is, he's got one bigger. When he pours into your cup, he don't just pour it in. He, it just flows over. When, when he gives you back life, it boils over and, and over and over and over and over and over. The difference between 2014 and 1951, 1957, 1960. Difference between then and now is then when we talked about if someone asked you, how are you doing today? Our response would be, oh, I'm blessed. Have I told you the last thing the Lord did for me? And they'd start sharing testimonies of, of, of incredible things that God had done for them. If you ask my mom, you know, how are you doing today? She'd say, oh, I'm blessed. Because God healed me of cancer when they said I was going to die. God healed me when I said I couldn't have kids. He gave me four more. I, I, I'm blessed. But we've, we've gone from discussing the beauty of God and the loveliness of God and the greatness of God to now we're looking at the junk on the inside. And we're, 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 you ask somebody, how are you doing today? They're going to say, well, I had anxiety problems today. I had a panic attack today. Or I'm suffering with depression. Or, we got all this junk. That is not the way God designed this church to be. He did not design us to live our life talking about all this stuff happening to us. It doesn't matter how bad life is or what's going on in life. It's just another day in life. I'm not really worried about this one. This is not the life I'm looking for. That's the one I'm looking for. It's not the world I live in that I'm looking for. It's the world I'm going to that I am looking for. Because in his city, there's no sorrow. There's no heartache. And the apostle Paul, in writing about his own life, he got to the point where he quit looking at the problems and started looking at him, and he, he, he at his, as an old man, he recognized, I haven't quite apprehended that which I'm apprehended of. I don't have a hold of what has a hold of me. I, I'm, I'm trying to put my arms around him. That's what John's doing. This old man reflecting is remembering what Jesus said, and he said, he, he came to give you life, life beyond your ability to even comprehend Living for God's not a tormented life. It's a blessed life.
Living for God is the greatest experience you could ever have in your life. The question is, I, I, I heard or talked to a gentleman who he had some real heartache in his life. His first wife died of a ruptured appendix at like 27 years of age. Young woman. He's out doing everything he can for the kingdom of God, preaching different places, holding revivals, and wife starts suffering with pain in her side. In just a few moments, she's, it's ruptured, and a few days later, she's dead. Marries again, and wasn't long for that. Wife decided she won't be part of his life no more and ran off with somebody else. Just one major chaos after another. Someone asking, wouldn't you like to live life without all this junk? He said, oh, no, no, you, you, you misunderstand. That junk, that's just life. It's just life. It's not where I'm going. I, I'm not, I, I'm not, I, I, I can't say anything bad about Jesus. All that stuff may have happened. I wouldn't want to redo any of it. Why? Because it's all about Him. It's not about me. It's about Him. Because He came to give me life beyond my ability to comprehend. Now, here's the problem. If I'm not living life beyond my ability to comprehend, it's not His fault. I can't blame God for the fact you know what, God, I, I, it's just not fair. Who said life's fair? Life's just life. There's good days. There are bad days. To one of the churches in Revelations, he, there was a promise made to them. I think it's Smyrna. Could be Thyatira. He said, To he that overcometh, I will give him a white stone. And in that white stone, he'll have a new name. That white stone doesn't mean anything to us. To a Greek, it meant a whole lot. Outside the front door of every home, Roman and Greek home, was a huge urn. Every day Dad came home from work, he put a white stone in it for a good day and a, 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 a dark stone in it for a bad day. At the end of his life, they broke the urn and counted the stones. They didn't pour the stones out because they didn't want anybody else using the urn. They broke the urn, symbolizing the end of his life, and then they counted the stones. If he had more white than dark, he had a good life. It only took one stone to make the difference. If you have three good days and a bad one, and three good days and a bad one, and three good days and a bad one, 75% of your life, you're living a good life. Why are you going to focus on 25% when 75% has been incredible? That's what we do. We focus on the junk instead of all of the incredible experiences between the junk. That's life. I've come that you could have life, life more abundantly. When you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you receive the power to have abundant life.
That's his desire. Please stand.